The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, October 1st, and this is The Gist. I'm John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia. I'm the host of Lexicon Valley here at Slate, and I write for The Atlantic. And I'm honored to be sitting in today for Mike Pesca. And I want to get started right away with a question. How is claiming weakness a form of strength? Of course, you might ask who said it was. And unfortunately, it's some of the smartest people in the world. Much of our intelligentsia on college campuses and beyond are teaching America one of the most counterintuitive ways of thinking that humankind has ever known. We learned some key perspectives on this from a crucial new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. This book expands on an Atlantic magazine article from 2015, and it covers the social justice warrior culture that's been so influential on American college campuses over the past several years. Most of us will know the territory. Unwelcome opinions treated as injuring one's sense of safety to the point of justifying barring speakers from campus. The tacit idea being that the claim of injury is exempt from question. The occasional tacky incident means that a campus is a thoroughly racist establishment. A question that you could interpret as exotifying, such as where are you from to someone born in the United States? Is as hurtful, we're told, as bullying, and so on. Lukianoff and Haidt deftly break all of this down into three guiding tenets that this new culture seems to work from. One, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two, always trust your feelings. Three, life is a battle between good people and bad people. Lukianoff and Haidt argue that these are actually great untruths, as they put it, because they, one, contradict ancient wisdom found widely in the literatures of many cultures. Two, they contradict modern psychological research on well-being. And three, they harm the individuals and the communities who embrace them. As a black person, I think of the implications of the book on race issues, although the book is by no means limited to those. And the big three tenets run directly up against what I was raised to think of as black power in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. Civil rights leaders of the old days would find much of the rhetoric from today, frankly, rather bewildering. Pauli Murray, black lawyer and activist, insisted in 1963 that none other than Alabama Governor George Segregation Forever Wallace be allowed to speak at Yale. She required that the rights of free speech that black people had fought for so hard had to be allowed to people she found noxious, including on issues as personal to her as race. James Weldon Johnson, head of the NAACP for a long time and also widely published author, insisted in 1934, I will not allow prejudice or any of its attendant humiliations and injustices to bear me down to spiritual defeat. My inner life is mine, and I will maintain and defend its integrity against the forces of hell. And for a more, shall we say, demotic rendition of the same sentiment, we can consult the lyrics of the greatest love of all, that soaring counsel most people will agree. 
But under the new regime, people like Murray and Johnson apparently had something wrong. And now they qualify as antique figures, I suppose. Lukianoff and Haidt note crucially that what's now taught as higher reasoning on social justice in many quarters even conflicts with how psychologists foster mental health in patients. I think few of us would question a mental health profession that imparts methods of coping with an eternally imperfect world in which everybody will inevitably encounter a certain degree of disrespect and misinterpretation. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, it fosters these kinds of coping strategies, and it's making ever greater strides and fostering mental health more quickly and effectively than good old-fashioned Freudian analysis. And yet, under the what we might call SJW strain of thought these days, fostering social justice requires fashioning oneself as vulnerable, injured, and or broken by things thoroughly woke people in the past would have treated as just stuff to brush off your shoe. Anyway, on today's show, I shall spiel about whether this new model of protest is a useful continuation of the civil rights movement. But first, let's talk to somebody else, such as Greg Lukianoff. And he is one of the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind. And one of his previous books is Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the End of the American Debate. And more to the point, Lukianoff today heads the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, that is. So let's talk to Greg about why campus debate has turned in this direction, whether it maybe qualifies as a kind of progress, and if it doesn't, what we might do to change things. So, Greg, first... As we both know, there have always been people who are given to a certain performance of delicacy. There's always been that kind of person. What made a dominant sentiment out of what once was an individual peculiarity? You know, it might just be a critical mass. um, But one thing that I definitely, I mean, a lot of the book is trying to figure out what was different about um, colleges in 2013, 2014. Because I've been working defending free speech and academic freedom at FIRE um, you know, for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. A- and it was only, and this sometimes is surprising to conservatives when I explain this, but for my entire career, students themselves were the best when it came to freedom of speech. I know what you mean, yeah. And it was only around 2013, 2014 when we saw that shift. Um, and that's not unheard of. It's not the first time that students have, have, have been sort of students united against uh, and demanding new speech codes. Mm-hmm. But the justification this time around uh, that what made, it, made it so different was it was medicalized. It was that, they, is that students were arguing not so much that I don't want this person on my campus because they're you know, offensive or aggressive or bigoted, but actually because if this person comes to my campus, my friend over here will be permanently traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. And it did happen then. I remember noticing a sea change and actually mentioning it to a few people in exactly 2013. Suddenly there was a new language. There was a new sense of, yeah, actual injury where you wouldn't have heard it even in 2000. 
and 12. And what I really like about your book is how you try to analyze why this is to just kind of shrug and say, ah, these people are crazy. That's not constructive. And a lot of your point is that there's this new narcissism. But I want to ask you something, because in reading the book, and and this is also how I felt when I read the article a few years ago, too. It's something I've never gotten around to asking you or Jonathan. Do you think that it's really narcissism as opposed to a social justice movement that's couched in what sounds like narcissist language. And I mean, isn't the person who claims that they feel, quote unquote, unsafe, really Uh saying in a kind of a presentational way that what makes them uncomfortable is something that should be obliterated from a just society? Isn't it supposed to be about more than them and their feelings? Oh, yeah. No, no. I I actually think that the, you know, the derisively referred to social justice warriors genuinely believe that they're doing something very kind and decent and, and, and they're, they're on the side of the angels. Mm-hmm. And we try to take that, that part very seriously. But one of the things that can kind of throw that mentality out of whack, of course, is if you don't have enough people to constructively disagree with you and to sort of talk you down in some <laughs> cases. Mm-hmm. So it, social media, unfortunately, and also just the, the, the dem- demographic shifts of people to neighborhoods and even city blocks that are more politically homogeneous kind of pats us on the back for um, being inside echo chambers. Definitely. And that's where the social science is really strong. People tend to get much more extreme in what they believe if they don't have someone in the group going, hey, hey, wait, maybe this isn't actually helping the people we want to help. So I yeah. think that that's one of the reasons why polarization and social media are two of the major factors we talk about in the book. You know, it's you say social media and this is something that I found myself thinking. You say in the book that um, this whole thing has been analyzed as tracing to this being the first generation raised on smartphones. And so we're talking about yep. kids born in the 90s. And that research is done by Gene, I'm afraid to say the name, Twangy. Twenge. How is it? Is it? Twangy. Twingy. But why can't we say, I mean, I'm a linguist and we like to pretend that our field is a science. And there's a part of me that always <laughs> thinks, do we have to say that it's smartphones and things that were happening starting, you know, say after the Clinton administration? Couldn't it just be social media? Couldn't it be that Facebook and Twitter became default things? It became unusual for you not to be on Facebook in, for example, 2009. How come it can't just be Facebook and Twitter as opposed to it being kids raised with phones? That's a genuine question. Yeah, that, 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 that is a good question. One of the reasons why we say social media more is, is recognizing that Tumblr is very influential, rec- recognizing that. Um, but the two, the two giants, of course, are mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook and Twitter, and mm-hmm. as far and if you want something that really shows the whole kind of like congratulations, you're in an echo chamber effect. <laughs> Facebook and Twitter really do empower that. Exactly. Oh, and I did want to add that, the, the, and the data is uh, strong that there is a connection between the psychological problems that we're seeing on, on campus and social media use. Um, it's, okay. it's there, just it doesn't explain enough of the variance. So we don't actually disagree with Twangy that this is part of the puzzle. We, mm-hmm. uh, the reason why we keep going, though, is because it just can't explain enough of, of what's changed, particularly with regards to mental health outcomes. And mental health outcomes, is that why you say that this new ideology harms people. You say that all of this is doing harm. And of course, you know, the people who are promulgating these kinds of ideas, we're talking about the student leaders, the students who they lead, the professors, the administrators, and frankly, just the people in general society who are beginning to exhibit this kind of behavior. Most of them would be surprised to hear that 
anything is harming them or that any harm is being done. These these are happy warriors who think of themselves as ahead of the curve. What's being hurt? Where's the harm? Well, and interestingly, that that's not the impression I've gotten, even of their own own, own self conception, because some of the articles, and this was originally, you know, more coming from uh, anecdotal evidence, but also you know reports, uh, news reports on campuses, of not just um, uh, overwhelmed psychological psychological counseling centers. Mm-hmm. But also um, students, activists feeling overwhelmed and depressed and um, just completely burned out by the hmm. by, by the, the the difficulty of, of fighting all day long. And believe me, you know, as someone who's devoted his career to fighting for causes, I, I get that. And actually, can I can I do a digression here? To, of course. To, uh, well, the whole the whole project with John started partially from, and I'm very frank about this in the book, my own issues with depression, um, and huh. part of that, frankly, was being uh, in the middle of the culture wars all the time. Um, it was, you know, alienating on a very personal level. It's very, uh, it's very stressful. And I, I fell into a really bad one in 2007. And the way I got out of it was cognitive behavioral therapy, which um, is a way of talking back to kind of the more exaggerated voices in your head to, to, mm-hmm. to, get, to get in the habit of calming yourself down. Mm-hmm. And, th- and that's where the book and the original article came from, was just me t- observing that at first it was administrators who were acting like students were in constant physical danger at a way that really seemed out of whack. That, you mm-hmm. know, that, that, that's where the speech zones come from. That's where, where, where they tell students, you, you know, everybody has to protest in this little tiny gazebo exactly. on campus. Um, it's an exaggerated sense of threat. But at the time, I was like, wow, it, well, it's a good thing the students aren't really buying this, the, the, this kind of apocalyptic worldview that right. administrators who seem very concerned about lawsuits, understandably, are, are kind of selling. And that's what we really noticed in 2013, 2014. It was as if overnight, the sort of more exaggerated kind of sense of threat that you would hear from the administrators, suddenly the students themselves were saying that. And we predicted that we might see some kind of um, you know, bad psychological outcome from this. But then when the numbers came in, it was just so much worse than we thought. How do we know that these people aren't right in some unprecedented way? Are you absolutely sure that these people aren't ahead of the curve somehow in a way that it's going to make us feel a little bit ashamed in 10 or 20 years if we don't completely agree? I think of myself very briefly uh-huh. in college back in the early 80s. I remember there was a particular guy I knew who used to say various things that certainly indicated that there was a part of him deep deep down that found black people a little lesser and a little bit ridiculous, just a little. And this person would be very surprised to see himself grouped under that heading. But there were various times when he kind of hurt me a little bit with certain Mm -hmm. dismissive comments, etc. Now, at the time, I just kind of let it pass. And I think of that as about 2% of what he is. And I've kind of gotten on with my life. But, you know, maybe that kid back then was naive. Maybe I needed more help than I thought. Maybe I should have had a diversity coordinator to talk about this sort of thing with, and I could have accused him of of a kind of hate speech. And maybe that would have been progressive. And that means that I just lived in more primitive times. How do we know that you and I aren't just backwards on this? Oh, we, we absolutely don't. Um, and, and that's one of those things where 
I, I always have to clarify this when I talk about the recommendation of cognitive behavioral therapy. All it really means, and I always try to get people to get over the T. I'm really just talking about things that even come from, you know, Stoic and Buddhist tradition to kind mm-hmm. of interrogate your thoughts a little bit more intensely. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, and when I explain this to people, they're, so you're saying these these ideas of social justice are just they're just figments of the student's imagination. Like, no, what I'm saying is they'll probably um, get get deeper into these ideas, or you know, in some cases, realize that maybe this isn't the the, the, the one you know on some topic that, that they've gone too far. Sure. But just the process of, of asking yourself, is this labeling? Is this overgeneralizing? Is this catastrophizing? Is good for everyone, whether you're Republican, liberal, moderate, libertarian. Um, it's And it's also, amazingly um, enough, good for mental health. I will say with a fair amount of confidence, though, um, with you know parents who come from, my dad grew up in Yugoslavia, my mom grew up in, grew up in Britain. They, they couldn't have more intensely different um, norms about politeness. Not at and, all, no. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and, my, and microaggressions, you know, for example, um, th- th- there's a reason why no culture says what, when, in, when in dealing with other people really sweat the small stuff, uh, because it, it, because if we really if, if we don't take a minute to try to figure out where someone else is coming from, rather than assuming that by the standards of the, my generally to be frank upper class you know highly educated mm-hmm. environment you're not supposed to say that and uh, that that indicates you're you know at some deep level evil that's i'm pretty confident we're going to find that's dysfunctional mm-hmm. but when it comes to a, a lot of other behaviors yeah no i think it, i think it's just best if it's actually run through a little bit of analysis first interesting i want to ask you greg before we before we finish this is mm-hmm. a a genuine question who are you hoping to reach with this book. I think the book is excellent, but are you going for administrators? Is it teachers? Is it ordinary people? And have you seen any converts yet? Um, you know, it's actually parents, I would probably say, is a surprising target for this book. And okay. it, they became the target for the book in the process of researching it. And there's two chapters in the book about parenting um, that uh, allowed us to interview a lot of experts on, on these topics and realize that some of this stuff that we're seeing on campus is the natural result of some really bad ideas in parenting, not mm-hmm. the least of which, and, it, and we explain in the book, it takes several steps to get to it, but the harm of helicopter parenting, the mm-hmm. harm of, uh, for that matter, the harm of scheduling, a, you know, someone that you want to go to one of these fancy schools, because this, this is mostly about people, the kind of people who send their kids to these schools, mm-hmm. um, that if you schedule them from 6, uh, 6 in the morning until 10 a.m. for their entire early life, you shouldn't be surprised that by the time they get to college, they're going to feel like they they don't have a locus of control, that they don't have a sense of autonomy, um, because they've never been. Because really, what you're being implicitly told, if your parents are completely in control of every minute, waking minute of your life, is that you're not capable. Um, sure. So I really, so first and foremost, I want to reach parents. Secondly, I want to reach. Um, Principles in, in uh, higher it, 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 uh, principles in K through twelve, and then uh, third, I'd probably say university presidents. Greg, I really do hope that happens. It's uh, really important, not to mention not too long, and therefore actually readable book. Thank you for <laughs> that was talking very important about it with us. me. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> Thank you, John. A real pleasure. And now the spiel. As Lukianoff and Haidt are quite aware, this phenomenon extends beyond the halls of Ivy 
as well as beyond black people. And it was seeded long before this decade. Remember the stuff white people like blog back in 2010? It was a wry self-parody of the cultural mores that had settled in by roughly the late 1990s amidst a certain stripe of educated white person. One of the cleverest entries in that was being offended. It described a kind of almost recreational quest to be offended crucially on behalf of people other than yourself. That struck me in its real life manifestation as a symptom of progressivism that maybe sometimes got a little semaphoric, but still. But Megan Down has a piece in Medium lately that perfectly gets across the way things have developed since then, where you have a lot of people who see themselves as liberals and progressives alarmed to see friends taking on a strident, uncompromising radicalism online and in conversations in the guise of justice and truth. And this is the thing. Middle class play dates are as central to this mise-en-scene, as it were, as dorm lounges. This is now much of blue America, not just campus politics. Now, to roll our eyes and dismiss that as crazy is unhelpful and it's incurious, as is, however, calling it complex while really kind of hoping somebody changes the subject soon. What's going on here? What's up? What changed? Where are we going? Where should we go? And make no mistake, I am as revolted by the resistance last week to Christine Blasey from Brett Kavanaugh Partisans as anybody else. I'm talking about things where I suspect most of us are seeing a pendulum that's swung too far in the other direction. I'm talking about a biology professor like Brett Weinstein being chased out of his job at Evergreen State because he refused to vacate the campus on a day that radicals had designated as one where people of color wanted the campus to be a safe space for a day from racism and therefore say racists like Brett Weinstein, a leftist person. I'm talking about calling any views on race to the right of the nation's white supremacy. I'm talking about that sort of new development. And yet I don't think I'm talking about anybody crazy. I think going from the race angle can be useful here. What I see is people sensing themselves as embarking on a new stage in the long civil rights battle. We're talking about a liberal tradition that ever calls for improvement of the status quo. Liberal in that sense. Now, racism is hardly vanquished in American life. So might the logical next task be a transformation of psychology rather than sociology? So our concern could be the underlying biases that undergird the racism that remains. So we'll seek not only a society without racist structures, but without racist thought. Racist thought can foster race-based disparities, the kind that can parallel the ones that overt segregation created in the past. So I think that an idea we're seeing here is that the new quest will focus to a new degree on how people think. Now, it might seem a stretch to imagine an America utterly devoid of bias, where no one is ever made uncomfortable on the basis of comments related to, say, their skin color. Yet it seemed as much of a stretch to most people to imagine an America without slavery or an America where interracial marriage raised no eyebrow. So aren't we just continuing the grand, old, slow, inexorable march towards justice? I get it, but... In the end, I have a hard time seeing progress in this new way of trying to foster it. The main issue with what we might call third wave anti-racism 
and by extension, the whole new SJW paradigm is a certain backwardness. And yes, I'm sorry, but but backwardness. Abolitionism and resisting segregation and Jim Crow taught us to resist primal sentiments, to perfect or at least seek to perfect what it is to be human. The new fashion teaches us to yield to the primal, to yield to the unconditioned. It elevates defeatism. It elevates hypersensitivity. It elevates oversimplification. It's all about the id, frankly, and even a degree of performance. The call for safe spaces from any failure to be fully understood. The microaggression treated as slashing slander. Even leftist professors tarred on camera as bigots a la Selma 1965. The watch cry seems to be, if you don't like it, cry loudly and then louder. Because you're always right and they're just bad. I can't see what we're getting from it. Now, believe me, we still need to do some getting. We can battle a war on drugs that creates a black market that tempts too many poor black men into lives of crime. We can fight for free access to long-acting reversible contraceptives for poor women. We can fight for phonics-based reading instruction for kids from bookless homes. People have no idea how many black kids, poor black kids, that does in to not get phonics-based reading instruction. We can stand against Republican attempts to discourage the black vote via a sham concern for all but non-existent voter fraud. The struggle must and will continue, and it can be quite resplendently woke. But model your behavior on a four-year-old's as a form of activism? Foster an us-versus-the-pigs perspective on humanity out of the Lord of the Flies that real-life experience always tells you is juvenile? Frankly, this is underconsidered. It's seductive but fruitless. It's a fashion statement in the guise of a program. I think we shirk the very real challenges of fostering social change in fashioning a new kind of activism based on performance and display where we pretend a focus on changing conditions on the ground for real people in real life when we're primarily interested in gestures of recreational despair, indignation, and banishment. The ultimate takeaway from Lukianoff and Haidt's book isn't that we should do less, but that we can do better. And folks, that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. I'm John McWhorter. Thank you to Greg Lukianoff for joining me today. Thank you to Slate for letting me sit in. And thank you for listening. Oh, that was real. You just have to say that? <laughs> I thought that was just like gibberish where you were supposed to put your name in. Um peru de peru du peru. And thank you for listening.